Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... We've got good news. The world is open again, and people like you, people of faith, are traveling to Catholic sites around the world. Want to travel with exceptional Catholic leaders this fall, next year, or in the future? Are you looking to see specific sites, celebrate traditional Latin Mass, or travel to destinations without vaccine requirements? We are here to help you deepen your faith on pilgrimage. Give us a call at 1-800-842-4842 or visit us online at selectinternationaltours.com. Select International Tours is your pilgrimage company, and we have the perfect Catholic trip for you. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree. Welcome to the Compass Catholic Changemaker Podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Kano. On this podcast, we talk about how to live with our money as Catholics. Hi, Changemakers. Today's episode is an interview with Doug Minum. Doug is the author of From Monk to Money Manager. In his book, Doug, a former monk turned financial advisor, shares the rules of money management that will change your approach to earning, saving, and investing. To learn more about Doug, you can visit douglinum.com, and we'll be sure to put his website in the show notes. I also want to invite you to hit that subscribe button to like Compass Catholic on Facebook and follow us on Instagram. Enjoy this episode. Thank you so much for joining me, Doug. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Caitlin. Um, so first of all, I haven't finished your book, but I'm in the middle of the audiobook version and you did a phenomenal job. And for those of you who don't know, Doug's book is From Monk to Money Manager. Um, and what I find really interesting about it is because um, we have a lot of similarities, but something you talk about in the book that I thought was fascinating is something I resonate with, which is we are good with money. We're money people. This is just how our brain works. And it seems like you have the same sense of dread that I do, like the pit in the stomach when it comes to dealing with our own personal finances. And I think people find it interesting sometimes, like, like we go ahead and we're so excited every month to go do our bills. Like that's how we work. And I still have the same dread and I've gone through it through discipline and, you know, in setting up schedules and things like that. But I'm wondering if you can speak to that issue because that resonated so much with me. It's not something anyone really looks forward to dealing with. No, it really, uh, well, there's a lot of psychological baggage and and trauma around money. If you've ever had any traumatic experiences, then sitting down and paying your bills can, can, you know, bring all that stuff back up. And so for me, I spent so many years trying to struggle through the bankruptcy of our monastery, which, which went underwater. And there were many, many very, very stressful years. And so even now, although the irony is that I help manage hundreds of millions of dollars and I love helping other people with their finances, dealing with my own money and sitting down and doing my budget each you know week is really tough. It's a, it's a tough slog. And I really have to 
like yourself, have some real discipline around it and, and make myself do it because, um, you know, my, my, I'm, I'm pretty avoidant around dealing with that stuff. And so it's, but it's essential. And, and just to acknowledge that we have all this baggage and, and the emotions of money are just as important and sometimes more important than the, the technical side, the number side, that, that stuff is, is pretty straightforward, but it's getting yourself to, to do it and to confront it and, and, you know, make headway with it. So, so yeah, I, I struggle every, every week when I, but you know, Saturday morning I, or a Sunday, depending on what the week looks like, I will always sit down and make sure I, you know, balance my checkbook and reconcile my accounts and make sure everything's squared away. But, but I'm a real procrastinator on it. Absolutely. And I find my clients and the people we work with, with our coaching, they find solace and understanding that it's not like there's money people and non-money people mm-hmm. that we all have this kind of ick when it comes to having to sit down and crunch mm-hmm. the numbers and deal with our behaviors and, you know, maybe overspending. Um, so I think it's important for people to realize that. And you had mentioned um, in that earlier answer, monastery. Mm-hmm. So for those who don't know your history there, um, can you explain about your time at the monastery and your experience there, especially regarding the bankruptcy, but also the personal bankruptcy that you had to navigate with some of the monks there? Yeah, so it's a kind of a, it's a long story. I'll I'll try to keep it short. But you know, I, I grew up in a relatively wealthy family where money was pretty abundant, but it was weaponized. Where when my parents divorced, you know, they they try to make the other one pay for everything. So. They, they had the, the resources, they just didn't want to spend any of it on us, on our kid, on our kids. So it was like, you need something, and you ask mom, she says, ask dad, dad says, ask mom. And at the end of the day, you just kind of walk away and empty handed and say, you know, I don't want to deal with it. So um, I, I had this real negative, so these, this money trauma that went all the way back to my youth where I thought money was the root of all evil and or the love of money is the root of all evil as, as, as it says in the Bible. and and so I tried to run away from that and in part to in sort of a radical separation from my parents, but also there was some genuine spiritual impulses. I decided I would leave the world of materialism, the evil world of money and capitalism and greed and selfishness and all that and run off and take a vow of poverty and join a monastery. And so, uh, which is oddly, there's, it's not, it's pretty common actually among people who take holy orders is this uh, sort of rebellion against your parents. You know, you're not my real father. I'm a child of God, right? <laughs> and, and then much to my surprise, um, when I was in the community, everyone, every brother in the community was just as avoidant around money as I was. We all had these very negative attitudes about it and thought that, well, because we loving God, because we're serving God and we're, we're, we're committing ourselves, uh, everything's going to work out just fine kind of magical thinking, right? We don't have to be too mindful of this because God's going to take care of everything. And so you're, you're basically, basically, which is neglect, it's you're outsourcing your responsibility that, or you're, you're neglecting your responsibility and thinking God's going to do for you what you should be doing for yourself. But you fast forward over many, many, many years, um, and we were in a hole financially. The community went underwater. And so um, we started taking a lot of debt. And eventually we all had to go through bankruptcy. And so that was, and, and by an absurd twist of fate, the responsibility for pulling us out of that hole fell onto my shoulders, um, even though I was financially illiterate at the time. So it was the blind leading the broke. And, um, but 
eventually we, we got it done and I, I realized I had some talent at it and it was a skill. And then over time, I started helping monastery guests with, with their struggles because they, they too would come in and say, with the problem. I'd say, sure, ha happy to do it. But, you know, building a budget might be a little bit more effective uh, solution after we do a few prayers. So, you know, it was really getting people to take that responsibility for themselves, kind of own up to what they need to do to, to take for their, for, not just for themselves, but for their family and their community. So that's kind of how I ended up eventually into the world of, of finance and becoming an investment advisor. But, but it was a very, very long, very, very painful and very, very difficult struggle. Goodness. And yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. You're saying that we will come to you for spiritual information and for, mm -hmm. for spiritual help. There's, I mean, I, I rarely, we're in a financial ministry, but I mm -hmm. rarely ever see a time where there's not a financial element to that. So mm -hmm. money is not everything, but money's in everything. Yes, exactly. Right. It's and that was my big everything. Yes. yes. You can't do anything without money, right? No. You can't, you can't, nothing, nothing happens. Money does unfortunately make the world go around. It's a, it's a cliche and God makes the universe go around, but money kind of makes the, makes society function. You, you can't act in the world without touching on money to some extent. And, and what am I really kind of sort of an obvious insight that you're touching on, but was a shock for me was that a lot of the spiritual problems that people were facing actually had a financial component, either as the root cause or even as a secondary issue. And so if you, if you tackle the financial piece, then often a lot of those spiritual anxieties and angsts either go away or, you know, be, become a little more clear and become, um, um, yeah, just solidify a little bit around what's really going on. Or mostly they just go away. Like it's like, how do I pay for this medical treatment that my partner needs who's has cancer? How do I put my kids through school? How do I put food on my table? These are real pragmatic concerns we have to deal with. And and if you if you if you tackle them, a lot of that, that spiritual stuff um, it helps. It's a, it's often a let me put it a little more succinctly. It's often a financial problem that's masquerading as a spiritual problem, and um, mm. and so when you tackle the financial side, you often solve the spiritual one. I love that. Maybe I'm going to write that one down. And when we're thinking about that, because we we as a ministry we try and relate that to parishes that, that we often get told from, um, especially those who are working directly with Catholics that. Uh, we don't want to deal with money because that's out of our realm. Mm -hmm. And we try and explain to them that again, money's in everything. You don't need to be a financial expert to acknowledge the financial stress that people are going through, mm -hmm. or at least point them in the right direction. And we often see that there's financial stress caused by external factors, huge medical bills. Um, there's life events that happen, all these big traumatic things. And then there's also micro behaviors that can lead to long-term financial issues. And then there's other, it's a big ball of yarn that can be a big old mess sometimes. And people just don't want to deal with it. So they try and separate out faith from finances. Mm -hmm. So how would, how would you relate that to someone and explain that to someone who needs to understand how holistic finances are to everything that, yeah. that they're dealing with, especially parish life? Well, you just said it. <laughs> I mean, you just you just did actually say it very very well, um, which is that exactly right. Um, particularly in parish life, you know. Gosh, so so the divine is 
here's maybe another way of looking at it is that that divide that people have between their faith and their finances is that if you if you take your faith seriously then then god is everywhere in everyone and in everything and that has to include your financial life they aren't separate and 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 if you try to bifurcate those two worlds then you end up bifurcating your spiritual life and you also are living kind of a schizophrenic existence. You're thinking that there's the there's the world, and then there's God. It's like, no, it's all it's all integrated. You don't you don't get to parse it out. Um, and when you do, things get very very tangled. And so to understand that this is a very very powerful tool for for love, for service, for compassion, for meaning, um, and that if you can integrate those two, which is really kind of what I've been trying to work on with my practice then you have a powerful tool for good in the world for yourself for your family and for others so um, it's really about making money a force for good in the world mm -hmm. yeah and you use the word tool mm -hmm. and money is a tool mm -hmm. um but you wouldn't use a hammer to clean a window right like we right. Know what tools we need to use when and how to use these tools so and you had also mentioned in an interview um that when you left the monastery, you didn't necessarily leave the monastery, but you had to learn how to bring the monastery out into the world. Mm -hmm. And you took what you discovered at the monastery and you're using that to, to influence the world. So can you speak about that using money as the tool? Mm -hmm. What have you determined that you need to do to influence the world, taking those, the tool of money and the tools that you obtained at the monastery? Well, I think what, what I learned what the monastery taught me was a real deep contemplative practice and this ability to what we call non-dualistic thinking where where you don't think that like i said you know god's over here and money's over there um or or that you are you're trying to integrate all of the, these things together and to have that deep centered connection with the divine and so so the, the monastic tradition did, does that very 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 well but contemplation by itself isn't really enough. It has to be contemplation and action. I would actually say contemplation, compassion, and action. For me, that's kind of the, the, the trinity of how, I, how my, my, my brain thinks. Is that So the, the monastery taught me the contemplative tradition. It taught me the compassionate tradition. But if you don't put it into action, it, it, you're falling flat. You're missing sort of one. Think of it as a tricycle. There's these three wheels of this tricycle. And if you pop one wheel off, you're not going anywhere. And so that's what was happening with the monasteries is we were kind of pedaling very hard, but we weren't getting anywhere because it wasn't that, that action, that ability to act in the world and, and is what, you know, is, is really what essential where, where, where the ministry ministry happens. And so I see a lot of people who are really good, particularly, you know, in American culture, we're very good at action. We know how to get stuff done. But without that contemplative grounding, then then you tend to maybe do not the most helpful thing in the world. So it's bringing those three things together, contemplation, compassion, and action together in service of the divine, then you have a very powerful tool. And when money is used appropriately as the right tool in the right context, then then wonderful things start to happen. So so that for me was the, the, the journey and the insights. Oh, I love it. And there's a big movement now um, pushing faith-based investments and, and investments that have to surround um, your, the change you want to see in the world, right? And so there's a, there's a movement of this, but there's those who do it well and there's who just put a label on mm -hmm. 
at a mutual fund that they just kind of repackage and throw a different chair. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. So what should Catholics know about that element? Um, once they get their debt right and they get their, you know, living on a budget and all those mm-hmm. different things, once they have investments, that money can be creating change in the world while you're sleeping. Right. So what do they need to know about that? Well, I'll, I'll start with the macro level and then we'll kind of get into the nuances. But but I think one of the biggest stories that I think is underreported in the world of finance that it's growing, it, it really is a, a, a blossoming field, which is this idea of what we call um, inv- you know, faith-based or, or socially responsible investing. And it turns out, and this is what we have from a, about 20 years of, of hard data, looking at a number of different studies from Oxford University, Cambridge, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Deutsche Bank, all, all of these folks have done really, really deep dive analyses of this stuff. And we found that in, you know, with, with appropriate caveats, um, a lot of financial disclaimers I could list, but with all of those in mind, it turns out that when you align your investments with your values, it can, either there's no difference in performance between conventional investing, but most over 80% of the studies have found there's actually a higher expected rate of return when you align your investments with your values. And you, and you also have less risk, so there's less downside. So the holy grail of finance is to get higher expected returns with less risk. It turns out that this socially responsible investing can do can do that, and so it, it's almost like, well, why wouldn't you be doing it? It isn't so it, to get away from the sort of the moral sermonizing, and, and that's important. It isn't about just you should do it because it's the right thing to, to to do. It is, but it also can improve your bottom line. And so, uh, with that in mind. It, it really is a, a powerful tool for change in the world. And, and we, we need to, the way, the way I frame it is you get, it's, we call it creation care or you know, loving your neighbor as yourself. All of those things should be a, a robust part of everything you do. But, but when you put it into your finances, it's like, okay, the really great things can happen. Companies that care about the future tend to do better in the future. It just sort of makes sense. And that's what we're what we're seeing. So it means caring for the environment. It means caring for people. People, planet, and profit is kind of the, what we call the triple bottom line. You know, those three things. Yes, you want to make a profit, but you also want to be caring for the people around you, your community, your neighborhoods, and also for the planet that we live on. Which, if we destroy, things are going to get really, really bad, which we're seeing. So, so, but there was a lot of greenwashing. That maybe the the term you're you were asking is people just sort of slapping labels on things, and so. That's true, but the the great thing about it is, it, I'm a little bit more hopeful around those. So there's some cynicism, there is some 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 shenanigans going on in that in that arena. But for the most part, at least we're moving in the right direction. At least people know they should at least be talking about it. They should at least be trying to address it. And those that do it really really well actually have a lot to gain, both on the profit side as well as the the, the social change that we need to, to see happen. So where would someone go about looking for a socially responsible investment that is in alignment with their Catholic values? Because um, I know sometimes people feel like, especially when it comes to any kind of investment, it feels like Oz mm-hmm. for a lot of people. I mean, it's just some crazy thing they don't know what to do. So they just hand their money over to mm-hmm. either a professional or you know their employer's base plan. So what do they have to do to take the step to get their money where their values are? 
Well, that's a really complicated question. Um, shameless self-promotion. I mean, that's what I do for a living as an investment advisor. So um, obviously I, my first response is give me a call. <laughs> you know, that's going to be happy to happy to have those conversations um, over at Longview Asset Management uh, here in Santa Fe. That's, so we only do environmentally and socially responsible investing. We will not take new clients if they aren't committed to that. So it's 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 baked into our DNA. And and, to, and there are a lot of people. We're not the only ones. There's there's lots and lots of investment advisors and firms uh, doing it and doing it very very well. And there's a great number of mutual fund companies that are doing a great job with it. But the the way I think one of the the things that people get hung up on is. Um, where it can get tricky is what level of purity are you looking for? Like how and what issues do you care most about? So I can't answer that question for you, um, but it's something to really think deeply about. And the way we approach it and the way I look at it is is not trying to, well, first of all, there's some certain companies you want to just don't even want to look at, right? So, so companies that are killing people through their products and services and companies that are killing the planet through their products and services. We want to try to say no off the bat. Okay. So we're going to do some negative screening to start. Um, but then after that, what we do is we screen all of the companies on about 30 different metrics using the United Nations principles for responsible investing. And then we're going to look at that and rank every company in their peer group, in their, in, in their industry and sectors. So we're, we're going to give every company a scoring and a rating, and then we're going to compare them to their peers and say, well, how are you doing relative to, you know, if you're in the energy industry, we still need energy. We don't want to say no to that, although fossil fuels are obviously problematic, but we still want to be able to say, well, what are, what are the companies on the, on the forefront, on the leading edge of that? Um, or if you're in the tech industry, you know, who's really pushing the charge forward? And so we try to invest in the top quartile of, of businesses within their peer rankings. And that gives us a, a really healthy screen. So sometimes clients will come to us and say, "Well, I see, you know, I see a, a company here that I don't like because there's one piece of the puzzle, one single button issue that they find objectionable." It's like, you know, yes, that's a, that's that's a problem, but we've got multiple issues. We've got all these different metrics, and we want to compare these companies on all different ratings, all the different sustainability and social responsible scores and see how they stack up. And so that's that's kind of our approach to it. But uh, without naming funds, uh, which gets me into in trouble, I would say, you know, I, I, I don't want to endorse anyone outright, but there are lots of things. A Google search will get you started. I mean, you don't have to be, um, but you also want to make sure that you're have a, have a healthy diversification so that your portfolio doesn't you know, so you, so you have the, the advantages of that. So it's kind of a, I'm not giving you a very clear answer because there isn't one. I mean, there isn't like, here's what you have to do. It's like, well, first you have to decide which are the issues that are most meaningful for you and then look for the, the companies that, that are going to be able to address them for you. It is, yeah. And it really is not like Oz. I mean, it, it's not that complicated of a process, but I think there is value in finding a fiduciary who can help you with that process. And you're shaking your head. So it sounds like you agree with me on that. You hear my favorite word in the world, which is fiduciary. And I assume okay. you talk about it a lot, right? So whoever you're working with has to be a fiduciary. And if they aren't, and they aren't upfront about it, walk away, just walk away. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Love the term fiduciary. It's, it's necessary. And it's going to probably save people a lot of money. Mm -hmm. in the long run. 
Yeah. For sure. so. and, but it will cost you a little more money up front. If, if the fee for, for, for a fiduciary is going to be higher than if you're just dealing with a broker or dealer, someone who's just pushing product because they're making their money on commissions and on the back end by selling you things that probably aren't really suitable for you. So, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. So that, that's probably good to know. It's not that, I mean, there's some that are expensive, but they, they tend to be pretty affordable these days. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, definitely look for a fiduciary and one that matches with your values. And it seems like you, you all have, are doing a great job there. Hey, we're trying. <laughs> That's awesome. So Doug, I really appreciate your time today. I think uh, we're going to have to have you on again and have another conversation because I probably have another 30 questions. After and, I, and I'd love to chat a little about the history of money, particularly from a biblical perspective. That's an interesting conversation we should get into because it, it does have a lot of implications for people, for how people think about their money. Oh, we have to stop here and I don't want to. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Hit pause and we can do another episode. <laughs> oh my goodness. So interesting. Well, Doug, thank you so much. I do appreciate you. You're welcome, Caitlin. All right. God bless. Appreciate it. A big thank you to Doug for taking time to speak with us. To learn more about Doug Lynham, please visit douglynham.com. Have a great week, change makers, and God bless. <laughs>